capitalist system And I'll tell you the reason why It has caused me so much suffering And my dearest friends Knowledge is power, and that power needs to be weaponized. Our education will be our freedom, our tool to ensure our oppressors hold no power over us. There can be no revolutionary movement without revolutionary theory, so it's time to get to reading. Welcome to the No Power Book Club. Folks, how we doing? We doing good? I hope we're doing good. I'm doing okay myself. Uh, this is your friend and comrade, George. Uh, I'm uh, going to be rocking a solo episode here, so I hope that's okay. Jesse's got some business to attend to, so he wasn't able to make it in for the cast. But I'm here, and we're going to be chatting about some books, or one book in particular, I should say. Uh, and it's a book that just kicks your fucking ass. Uh, it is a book by the name of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. By Paulo Freire. So, uh, I think if we're uh, just going to be diving in here out the gate, uh, just getting right to it, we should talk about who Paulo Freire is. Uh, so, Paulo Freire was a Brazilian Marxist educational scholar, and he uh, developed a radical approach to transforming how we uh, look at and implement education. So uh, just a little bit of background here. Freire was born in 1921 in Brazil uh, in the center of one of the most extreme situations of poverty and underdevelopment in the third world. So he was born into a middle class family, but the uh, global fallout and ramifications of the Great Depression actually plunged his family into poverty uh, where they would starve just trying to make ends meet. So uh, the extreme poverty and hunger that afflicted him at an early age uh, led him to actually make a vow at the age of 11 to dedicate his life to the struggle against that hunger that he felt so that other children would not have to know the agony he had experienced. So this book is born out of a lived experience, uh, Freire's own lived experience of being considered what uh, French psychologist France Fanon calls the wretched of the earth, uh, you know, being subjected to the most extreme forms of poverty. You know, Freire's uh, family had a, a stable situation and the rug was pulled out from under them. And then he, uh, he experienced what, uh, what true abject poverty is, and uh, that shaped uh, his worldview. And, uh, you know, this book was considered dangerous and actually banned in areas under colonial occupation like South Africa under apartheid. Uh, Freire himself was even exiled out of Brazil during the uh, military dictatorship because his thoughts and teachings were considered traitorous. Uh, at the time, there was a literacy requirement for voting uh, in Brazil. So Freire was actually journeying to the countryside and dialoguing and uh, educating uh, with the uh, peasantry or the peasant farmers, uh, which was viewed as a threat to the established order. And, uh, you know, it really helped give me a perspective on, uh, I guess, uh, how we how taken for granted uh, education is these days. You know, we, we really do view it as something that's uh, always existed in our culture uh, and been provided, you know, without question. Uh, but, you know, in the countries where revolutionary struggle has taken place, education was not guaranteed or, you know, seen as a human right. Uh, these places were uh, seen as backwards and illiterate, uh, making them really kind of ripe for uh, colonial occupation and oppression. 
but uh, their movements aren't without failures and mistakes. But to look at these places now and see near 100% literacy rates, which, you know, something that some some cities in the United States can't even boast any longer. Uh, it's I mean, it's really astonishing and it, it truly transformed their society. Uh, there's this political scientist. His name is uh, Michael Parenti, uh, and we posted a clip of him on our uh, on our Instagram and our Twitter. Uh, but you know, Parenti uh, passionately was just screaming about uh, you know his father and not being able to read. And you know, he he asks so passionately, "Do you know what it means to be able to read?" And uh, the oppressed of these countries did not know that luxury, and uh, it uh, that's what kept them in a state of dehumanization. And when you do not feel human, when you are told that you are no good, lazy, and worthless every day by those who hold power over you, you begin to believe that you are incapable of learning anything. I can read. Do you know what it means to be able to read? Do you know what it means to be able not to read? I remember when I gave my book to my father, I dedicated a book of mine, Power and the Powerless, to my father. I said, to my father with my love. Gave him a copy of the book. He opened it up, looked at that. He'd only gone to the seventh grade. He was a son of an immigrant, a working-class Italian. And he opens the book, and he starts looking through it, and he gets misty-eyed, very misty-eyed. And I thought it was because he was so touched that his son had, had dedicated a book to him. That wasn't the reason. He looks up to me and says, I can't read this, kid. I said, that's okay, Dad, neither can the students. I mean, that's not something... I mean, don't, don't worry about that. I, I wrote it for you. I mean, it's your book, and uh, you don't have to read it. You know, it's a very complicated book, an academic book. I said, yeah, I can't read this book. And he just... And the defeat, the defeat that that man felt, that's what illiteracy is about. That's what the joy of literacy programs is. That's why in Nicaragua you got people walking proud now for the first time. They were animals before. They weren't allowed to read. They weren't taught to read. So you compare a country to what it came from with all its imperfections and those who demand instant perfection the day after the revolution they get up and say are there civil liberties for the fascists are they going to be allowed to have their newspapers and their radio program are they going to be able to keep all their farms the passion that some of our liberals feel the day after the revolution the passion and concern they feel for the fascists the civil rights and civil liberties of those fascists who were dumping and destroying and murdering people before. Now the revolution has got to be perfect. It's got to be flawless. Well, that isn't my criteria. My criteria is what happens to those people who couldn't read? What happens to those babies that couldn't eat, that died of hunger? And there, that's why I support revolution. The revolution that feeds the children gets my support. Not blindly, not unqualifiedly. So this book is uh, is a testament to uh, Freire's experiences in trying to uh, educate the illiterate and the oppressed. He was providing them with the critical consciousness uh, necessary to understand their oppression, which is the first step in the path towards liberation. So make no mistake about it, true education is revolutionary. It's uh, it's usually one of the first things that's uh, addressed in these these revolutionary movements. Uh, you know you. You have, uh, you know, Cuba going from only having 60% uh, literacy under Fidel to uh, 100%. I mean, you know, Mao's China, they only had like some 15% literacy, and now it's over 90%. Uh, Venezuela is also at 100%. Uh, Russia, you know, before the USSR, uh, was under 50% and went to 100% literacy in seven years. 
So uh, it's, uh, again, you know, it's not uh, wholesale apologetics for these uh, these movements. You know, they're not without their faults and their failures, but uh, that's something that can't be discounted there, folks. Uh, literacy, it's a powerful thing. So in talking with some folks about the book, uh, you know, it's a short read, uh, but it is dense at times. It is kind of an academic text. Uh, and so I thought it'd be good to go over, uh, you know, some general kind of terms and glossary stuff. Uh, give everybody a little bit of a preface before we kind of dive in here. Uh, figure that's always good to elaborate uh, on some terminology. Uh, and let's uh, start with, you know, a word that's in the title, which is uh, pedagogy. Uh, it's uh, typically used uh, as a nice and fancy word for education. Kind of makes you sound real smart. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's defined as a set of methods and practices for teaching. So in academic settings, uh, the term refers to the, uh, kind of broader study of educational practices. Uh, it could include discussions of how students learn, how teachers interact with their students, uh, and how different types of teaching create different classroom environments. But uh, Freire looks at pedagogy as more than just a uh, one-size-fits-all term for uh, education or uh, education curriculum. To him, everything is an exercise in pedagogy, uh, a lived experience that is in turn an educational experience. Uh, as the, uh, the old cliche goes, you live and you learn. So pedagogy to Freire isn't just what you learn at school. It takes place uh, in all uh, parts of your life. Political parties are pedagogical. Churches are pedagogical, etc. Freire's pedagogy is aimed at liberating the oppressed people, seeking to change the dynamic between student and teacher, or uh, oppressed and oppressor, or uh, you know, colonized and colonizer. He uh, is aiming to give uh, people the tools to critically analyze the world and understand why it is that they are oppressed. And uh, you'll notice that this is going to be a common theme amongst uh, us talking about this book here is critically analyze, uh, giving people the tools to uh, critically analyze or understand the uh, material conditions that affect them. Uh, it seems like uh, common sense observations sometimes, uh, but, uh, you know, in fact, it's a, a very profound and revolutionary way of uh, thinking and teaching. It is the teachers asking why and the students being allowed to freely ask the same thing. And a little bit of a quote here on pedagogy is that revolutionary critical pedagogy operates from an understanding that the basis of education is political and that spaces need to be created where students can imagine a different world. So another term uh, that pops up in the book uh, is uh, a term that is, uh, it's actually in Portuguese, and I had, uh, I had Josh's wife, Fernanda, help me out here. Thank you, Fernanda, on this pronunciation. Hopefully I don't butcher it, uh, but I'm sure the first time uh, anyone came across the word in the book, it was like, okay, I do not know this one. <laughs> And that is conscientizazo, uh, um, and that's uh, that's as good as my pronunciation is gonna get. Uh, so one more time, it's conscientizazo, uh, uh, and we can think of that as a critical consciousness. Uh, it refers to learning to perceive social and uh, political and economic contradictions 
and to take action against the oppressive elements of reality. So again, think of this as a critical consciousness. This is the being able to critically analyze the world, see it for what it truly is. It's not so much a third eye kind of Illuminati thing. Uh, it's just being able to understand and process the material reality around you. And moving on to our last word I think we should elaborate on is dialogical. So Freire uses the word dialogical a lot in the text. Uh, and like pedagogy, it's kind of an academic dressing up of uh, dialogue or discourse. So Freire's education, or pedagogy rather, is uh, founded upon a genuine outreach and conversation between one another, endeavoring to understand each other's perspective and the material world at large. So to be dialogical with one another is to critically think about the world together. And when we are engaged in a true dialogue, we have equal agency and no person holds uh, power over the other. So we want to think about this as like a genuine conversation, real egalitarian stuff here where we are acknowledging uh, our, own, our own imperfections and we understand that everyone has something valuable to contribute. Uh, you know, for the cynical and irony poison minds, I know this type of sentimentalism is going to be seen as real naive, maybe even idealistic, but we have got to combat that. We must be sincere and we must have an intense faith in people, especially faith in people's uh, power to transform our world. All right, okay. Uh, housekeeping's out of the way. No more, no more terms like that. Um, but uh, I thought before we got into the uh, the rest of the text, it was important to address something that's actually talked about in the uh, outset of the preface, uh, and that is a discussion about identity politics. Maybe I'll cue a uh, <laughs> a sound effect there. Um, uh, I know that uh, some people see that uh, buzzword right there and they instantly cringe and they. Uh, they don't want to uh, have this conversation, but, uh, I mean, Freire, he's just real on point with his conversation about this, uh, or I guess his, uh, his defining of how he views uh, in intersectionality. There's another buzzword for you folks. In studying the nature of oppression and the relationship between oppressor and oppressed, Freire came to the conclusion that oppression converges and intersects, cut across by factors such as race, class, gender, culture, language, ethnicity, etc. So he actually came to reject a class reductionist mindset, where everything boils down to one single entity of oppression. So while class is often neglected or overlooked when talking about oppression, especially through the lens of kind of these, uh, liberal identity politics, we never want to be class reductionists, uh, foregoing any material and principled intersectionality that has consideration for unique perspectives from vulnerable communities. Freire argues that while one cannot reduce the analysis of racism to social class, one cannot understand racism fully without a class analysis. For to do one at the expense of the other is to fall prey to a sectarian uh, position, which is uh, despicable, as that racism that we need to be rejecting. 
Now, like we said at the outset here, identity politics is a uh, it's a buzzword, uh, kind of a catch-all used by uh, reactionaries. Uh, that's people resistant to social progress and uh, people who are class reductionists. Um, it's uh, it's used by these groups to describe uh, things they don't like. <laughs> Most of the anecdotes and outrage uh, stories about trigger warnings or PC culture and microaggressions that we see on the news networks uh, or these uh, editorials from these new outlets, uh, this is all shit that's just stories that are either taken out of context without data and uh, blown out of proportion to kind of manufacture hysteria and outrage at oppressed groups that are are, are just calling attention to the systemic injustices they face on a day-to-day basis. Identity politics is a means of organizing along lines of identity in order to fight the forms of oppression distinct to these groups. That's all it is. It's... Structures of oppression produce shared experiences among the oppressed. And while I do agree that there are overzealous groups and individuals that are using a kind of a performative call-out to gain attention or for some internet clout, uh, or, I mean, sometimes even, you know, to prioritize uh, other oppressions uh, over others, uh, most groups that organize around lines of identity realize that oppressions interlocked and intersect with one another. They're organizing together for visibility and solidarity, understanding that their personal experiences are most likely not isolated apolitical incidents, but are rather components of a society-wide structure of oppression. Now, something that we need to be really aware of is that identity politics has clearly, uh, or identity politics and the language surrounding identity politics and the activism and organizing surrounding identity politics, it's clearly been co-opted and appropriated by a political and ruling elite class uh, to grant token acceptance to people who do not challenge their power, appropriating parts of their movement to absorb and subsume them into the status quo, rendering their movements and voices ineffective. So liberal identity politics is bullshit and will only amount to slogans and rhetoric policing, never addressing the actual material needs of people. However, this does not mean that voices and perspectives from marginalized and vulnerable communities should be cast aside so we can, uh, quote-unquote, work on the real revolution stuff. You know, we're just sidelining and silencing those who are vulnerable further continuing this cycle of oppression. Freire always emphasizes that the liberation of an oppressed social group must be achieved by the oppressed group themselves. So we must be in dialogue, dialogical, there it comes back, folks. We must be in dialogue with the oppressed and learn from their perspectives as to where and how their oppression is manifested and how it affects them. The solution to bad identity politics is not no identity politics, it is good identity politics. We cannot reduce all of these lived experiences to a singular approach. Our analysis of oppression must be intersectional, acknowledging that different communities experience different oppressions. The better we understand the communities, unique perspectives, the better we can organize together to end the oppression that they suffer under. 
Okay, so I thought the best way to approach the rest of the text and uh, all the ideas and themes explored would be uh, going chapter by chapter. So let's start with chapter one, uh, which is uh, defined uh, at the outset of the book as uh, the justification for a pedagogy of the oppressed, the contradiction between oppressors and the oppressed and how it is overcome. Liberation, not as a gift, not as a self-achievement, but as a mutual process amongst the people. And uh, like I said at the, uh, at the beginning of the cast here, Freire's work uh, on analyzing these things like education or you know the relationship between uh, oppressed and oppressor is, uh, is really profound and it's so articulate and spot on that when you're reading it, you're, you're kind of amazed that you didn't already think that or you might even think like, oh yeah, that's what I already thought uh, because it's put in such like matter-of-fact terms. So Freire emphasizes that uh, it's the great humanistic and historical task of the oppressed to liberate themselves and their oppressors as well. Our oppressors exploit by virtue of their power, so they cannot find the strength or the power to liberate. So any attempt to soften the oppressor's power, uh, so to, to placate or pacify the oppressed or the masses, uh, that kind of manifests itself in the form of what Freire notes is a false generosity. Uh, so I look at that as, uh, here's your breadcrumbs so you won't get too upset with us. Uh, you know, just enough to fuck off. And this is uh, sort of perfectly encapsulated in the uh, quote-unquote wealthy philanthropist billionaire archetype who generously bestows uh, charity uh, onto us lay people, <laughs> us common folk, the, uh, the peasants, uh, you know, these billionaires, they've gained their wealth through uh, either inheritance or uh, ex exploitation. Or, well, <laughs> I mean, their inheritance was also probably gained through exploitation. And uh, nobody comes to be a billionaire through grit and happenstance. <laughs> it only happens through exploitation of labor and resources. And uh, these people are unelected and unaccountable, and we cannot just we we can't put all of our eggs in that basket. We can't think that uh, the Jeff Bezos or the Elon Musks of the world are going to be our saviors, um, because they're not going to do anything if it uh, if it doesn't help their bottom line. So we can't wait for Jeff Bezos to come down with a terminal illness uh, like David Koch uh, did uh, for us to get funding uh, for research into terminal illnesses. Um, or, you know, Elon Musk, he's uh, already trying to privatize space travel because he just wants to leave the planet because he realizes, like, ooh, this is a dead end and we're not going to be fixing this climate change thing, so I better get in on the ground floor of uh, colonizing Mars. Or, I mean, fuck, even Bill Gates, you know, Bill Gates is always upheld as... Uh, the, uh, the the sort of a paragon of uh, philanthropist people, you know, giving billions of dollars uh, in aid to Africa. Um, but why does he have such a vested interest in Africa? Um, could it be that he uh, needs uh, the cheap labor mining the coltan resources uh, for all of our Microsoft projects? Well, of course he does. 
We can't look to these people to liberate ourselves from this oppression because the oppression that we live under is a direct result of these people's policies. And Freire goes on to note that true generosity consists precisely in fighting to destroy the causes which nourish false charity. So after talking about uh, this notion of uh, false generosity and false charity, Freire then goes on to talk about how the oppressed sometimes, instead of striving uh, for liberation, tend to actually become oppressors. The oppressed have internalized the image of their oppressors, uh, therefore living with a duality of being oppressed while also yearning to become uh, the op oppressor, and uh, I think we really see a lot of this in America, uh, which is the uh, the land of the temporarily embarrassed millionaires, uh, where, you know, fuck you, I'm gonna get mine one day, and then you're gonna pay. Yeah, that'll show those poor! Why are you cheering, Fry? You're not rich. True, but someday I might be rich, and then people like me better watch their step. And uh, Freire has this quote that uh, he says, When education is not liberating, the dream of the oppressed is to be the oppressor. And I think that's just a real fucking hammer on the nail situation. And, you know, sometimes we, uh, we have even been able to uh, recognize that we've uh, sort of internalized some of these bad habits. And uh, we can even look to the people who oppress us and we note that, yes, like, our oppression comes at their hands, and I do not want what they have, but I also have this uh, fear of freedom, uh, a sort of uh, complacency that uh, oppressed people suffer from, uh, and it's uh, because, you know, they, they, they live with this duality of knowing that without freedom, they cannot exist authentically, but simultaneously they fear an authentic existence. And fear of freedom is something that uh, Freire uh, talks about a lot in this book. Um, and uh, it again goes back to this notion that, uh, you know, freedom is acquired by conquest, not by gift, and it must be pursued constantly and responsibly. And uh, I know it's scary to think about the unknown and to, to, to think about... Uh, you know, how this is going to take a lot of work and a lot of patience on our end uh, to, to really fight for this, uh, this true human liberation. But, you know, liberation is a painful childbirth. That's what Freire describes it as. Um, he says that uh, the man or woman who emerges is a new person, viable only as the oppressor-oppressed contradiction is superseded by the humanization of all people. Or to put it another way, the solution of this contradiction is born in the labor which brings into the world this new being. No longer oppressor, no longer oppressed, but human in the process of achieving freedom. And uh, that also goes back to what we talked about on the first podcast. You know, this, uh, this idea have, of, of how... You know, ideology and, uh, and breaking through those plateaus that ideology sets up for us is a painful process, but uh, it's a necessary process. And we're, we're going to have to have these hard conversations and uh, realize the hard truths. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's not going to be an easy road, folks, but uh, it's going to be the road that we have to travel together if we if we really want to achieve uh, this this true uh, freedom or emancipation 
So, to engage with the struggle for human liberation, Freire advocates developing a pedagogy of the oppressed as a tool for the oppressed to understand that both they and their oppressors are manifestations of dehumanization. They must perceive the reality of oppression not as a closed world without an exit, but as a, uh, and this is a Freire's uh, term, but a limiting situation which they can transform. This pedagogy is achieved through dialogue with people about their actions, not explaining to them. Now, I think it should be stated that uh, with the existence of uh, these oppressions, we can see that a type of violence has been carried out. So whether that's a, a cultural violence, a spiritual violence, a physical, economic, etc. Um, and those who are the oppressed, uh, they are not the initiators of this violence. And how could they be? Because their oppression is a direct result of the violence or the bigotry or the hatred carried out against them. And this is something that is really, uh, really fucking missed uh, or uh, just ignored uh, in these media narratives uh, about popular resistance movements. Uh, so uh, take Ferguson, for example. You know, we had the conversation about the property damage and the destruction or, you know, in the wake of Freddie Gray's murder in Baltimore. You know, people look at these situations and, uh, you know, they look how violent these situations are. And what this is, is a response to a violence in an oppression that has already been inflicted upon these people. This is something that is born out of a response to a violent situation. So we have to stop this uh, this narrative or this conversation. You know, I, I, I've heard it called the, the uh, civility fetish. They look at this community and we say, oh, we must denounce uh, all of this violence uh, that, that, that's coming in response to these things. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Are you serious? This is a response to the oppression and the violence that they live with every day. To quote Freire here, Consciously or unconsciously, the act of rebellion by the oppressed, uh, an act which is always or nearly always as violent as the initial violence of the oppressors, that can initiate love. Whereas the violence of the oppressors prevents the oppressed from being fully human, the response of the latter to this violence is grounded in the desire to pursue the right to be human. And this is something we need to understand uh, in the wake of all these popular resistance movements, uh, you know, where the media wants to portray uh, their uh, tactics or their uh, strategies as sort of hostile. Um, their hostility is in response to a violence inflicted upon their community. We must remember that protests and, you know, revolutions, they require struggle and sacrifice um, and that can lead to hostility, but the aim is human liberation. But human liberation is not accomplished by simply replacing those at the top with those at the bottom, or, you know, a simple role reversal, and that's not the aim here. It's accomplished by radically transforming society into a society that allows people to become fully human. So in moving away uh, from talking about, you know, sort of the, the, the physical uh, resistance that we see, I want to talk about uh, outreach. 
um, which is, you know, obviously the uh, the crux uh, <laughs> of everything dialogical. Um, and I want to talk about the tactic of meeting people where they are at, because I think that this is another important thing that Freire talks a lot about, uh, and it kind of dovetails nicely into the larger conversation where people say, well, you have to meet people where they're at and see things their way. And I, I like a lot of this tactic um, because, you know, like we said, uh, it's important to understand people's perspectives uh, and to, you know, to want to really kind of, you know, walk a mile in their shoes. Um, but I think it should be noted here and really emphasized that that is definitely not an excuse to uh, engage in bigoted or fascist or reactionary behavior uh, to make yourself quote-unquote, more relatable. That, uh, to me, is a, is a fucking farce. Uh, and it's something that people tell themselves uh, so they don't have to engage in any sort of uh, meaningful self-reflection or self-criticism. But it's like people saying, like, well, you know, uh, people like to say racial slurs or, uh, you know, like to make fun of disabled people or people like to make fun of trans people. So I, I should do that, too, uh, because that's me meeting them where they're at. And that's that's fucking that's patently fucking ridiculous. You know, ironic bigotry is still a bigotry. And what would it say about us that if we were to abandon consideration for people, you know, of different races or genders, sexual orientation or disabilities, you know, so, so we could crack some jokes. There was this amazing piece by uh, Alison Escalante, who is the co-host of the uh, Red Menace podcast, uh, where she talked about this type of behavior. And she had this quote uh, where she said, um, we cannot uh, build connections with the masses by refusing to challenge uh, reactionary ideas and attitudes or by ignoring the needs of, you know, disabled or racially marginalized simply because meeting their needs might make white people uncomfortable. You know, we will never build connections with the masses or the oppressed who who daily fight against, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, white supremacy or, uh, you know, heteronormativity or patriarchy, you know, uh, settler colonialism. You know, we will never be able to fight with these people if we decide that, uh, well, you know, we, we should just hear out Tucker Carlson. Um, and, uh, you know, we should really let him and, uh, and his kin, uh, kind of guide our approach to organizing. Uh, because again, it's, it's like we were talking about with these wealthy philanthropists. It's like, you know, these oppressions stem from these hurtful and, and harmful ideologies. Um, so why are we going to coddle them? Allison in her article has this quote from Mao, uh, that I really like. Uh, where he says, Our comrades must not assume that the masses have no understanding of what they themselves do not yet understand. It often happens that the masses outstrip us and are eager to advance a step when our comrades are still tailing behind certain backwards elements. I know the narrative of the coastal elites is something that obviously Trump and his base plays up, you know, to pander to people uh, in the flyover states, but legitimately, uh, I feel though, since like the 90s, there's been this uh, emphasis on like, ah, those dumb yokels, they don't know what's best for them. I'll take care of it. You, you put me in charge. 
and 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 I'll do the I'll do the real work, and that is never going to accomplish what we want to accomplish because you are you are approaching this from a point of condescension uh, and dismissiveness, and uh, that will never appeal to people. You know, we're not going to be able to build connections and organize with one another if we are just constantly just writing people off, especially uh, if. If if a lot of their ideology is just a product of their environment, it's going to take work and it's going to take fucking patience and understanding. Uh, but this is the task of a true revolutionary education. And tying this whole chapter up uh, and talking about you know developing this uh, this revolutionary education or pedagogy, um, the the oppressed will continue to undervalue and dehumanize themselves. Uh, Freire notes this. And uh, we see this a lot when you are told that you are no good, lazy, and worthless every day by those who hold power over you, you begin to believe that you are incapable of learning or doing anything. You know, what can I do? I'm only one person. Or what can I do? I'm only a peasant. And this also goes along with what we were talking about, about, you know, being dismissive or condescending towards people. Uh, That just further plays into this narrative, uh, you know, where people just do not understand uh, the power that they themselves have and the value that they themselves add. Uh, And that's why it's just so necessary uh, that that we craft and carry out this kind of education uh, with people, you know, to, to substitute real change in political action, you know, with slogans or, or platitudes or hashtags uh, in lieu of, you know, critical and liberating dialogue is to attempt to liberate uh, uh, the oppressed with the same shit uh, that, that, that kept them oppressed in the first place, you know, the same instruments of domestication. You know, we're not just implanting or advertising what our idea of freedom is uh, to other people. We are engaging in a meaningful dialogue with one another to understand what real freedom actually does. Okay, so moving on to chapter two here. Uh, this is a chapter that is focused uh, exclusively on educational theory. It's what Freire calls the banking education model versus the problem-posing education model. Uh, and this can all sound real boring and dry. Uh, Freire's analysis here and uh, and what he's proposing to do to, to transform the educational system is some good shit, so it's, uh, it's worth exploring. So Freire notes that uh, current educational approaches are viewed... Uh, they, they view students as containers that need to be filled by the teachers. Uh, the more completely uh, the teacher fills the receptacles, the better the teacher is. Uh, and that's termed, uh, that's what he terms as the banking model of education. Uh, and it's the type of education that most of us are familiar with. Uh, it's education as an act of depositing, where the teacher is the authority and the depositor. Instead of communicating in a dialogical fashion, there's that word again, uh, the teacher simply communicates and commands, allowing students the chance to only receive, file, and store the deposits. So, you know, it's the, the capital of, uh, of Missouri is Jefferson City, and uh, the, the, they speak French in France. The Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, you know. This does not lend itself to developing a critical analysis. 
um, especially because I feel like it strips a lot of context out of education. So you can't have a, you know, a more nuanced or principled discussion on things. It's just presented as facts, and these are these are what they are. And uh, you know, learn it and uh, answer this multiple choice question and move on. And this is something Jesse talked about in the first episode. Um, where, uh, you know, our, our education system is so broken and how the approaches to standardized education have really undermined uh, our, our, our pedagogy or our education systems as a whole. And, you know, we learn a bunch of this shit um, and it, it does nothing but assimilate us into the world that these dominant elites have created for us. And so what Freire is suggesting is really a radical approach um, to changing education. Uh, and that's uh, moving from the banking model to a problem-posing model. One where we take a problem and we look at it and we are, uh, we are provided the freedom to ask why this problem exists and to work together in dialogue with one another to try to, uh, to, to, find, this, uh, to find a solution that benefits everybody. And this requires that dialogue that we've been talking about. This dialogue is going to, uh, to, to bring about an end to kind of this teacher-student contradiction. Uh, it's no longer, you know, the teacher is the authority uh, holding, uh, I guess, dominion over the students. But it's, uh, you know, the teachers teaching the students as the students teach the teachers. And uh, I, I understand how this can sound kind of kind of hippie. But uh, I think back to my experiences in high school, I think the best teachers that I had were the ones that were kind of engaging in this, uh, this radical dialogue, you know, trying to learn with the students. So with reading this book, you know, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, you know, we should reflect on our own experiences with education. Uh, especially the education and you know curriculum taught in public schools, and you read what Freire is suggesting, uh, you can really start to connect some dots here. You know, yes, the education that's presented to us is uh, is preparing us for society, but it's a society that is shaped and governed by the rules of the dominant elites, where we're allowed to critique and criticize, but we're not allowed to change or transform things. And you've heard us say this quote before, but Freire once said that education is the practice of freedom, the means by which we deal critically and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of our world. But true education is never going to be given to us by our oppressors or by these dominant elites. Uh, I believe Audre Lorde's quote, uh, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, or Asada Shakur's uh, quote saying, uh, no one is going to give you the education you need to overthrow them. Those two come to mind. Um, our liberatory education has to be fought for. Um, you know, they're only going to keep prescribing us the education necessary to keep us subjugated and assimilated into their world so we can't uh, challenge these power structures. And it wouldn't be a no-power podcast if I wasn't uh, quoting my boy uh, Karl Marx here, but uh, Marx wrote that uh, the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas. 
So, you know, the ideas that govern our society and our way of thinking right now, those are the ideas of the people who are in charge. Uh, and I don't think that that's like, you know, a harebrained tinfoil approach to looking at how how, how the world works right now. Uh, I, the, the people who are, uh, who are the most powerful in society have a vested interest in maintaining that power structure, and they have a lot of money and resources at their disposal to, uh, to, to influence our society and our thought. That's why we have so much deep-seated indoctrination and propaganda that we have to work through together before we can even begin to liberate ourselves from these mental prisons. Uh, but this is so necessary for us to be doing together. And it, it can't be approached, you know, cynically or nihilistically. Uh, it has to be approached with a healthy skepticism, sure. Yeah, a ruthless criticism of everything. That's what Marx talked about. Um, but if we do not seek out a true education and solidarity with one another, you know, we're just going to uh, to keep on uh, keep keep on telling ourselves the same lies and myths. You know, the same state-approved ruling class propaganda that gets spoon-fed to us on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, and this starts with analyzing our current problems. You know problem-posing education. It starts with analyzing our current problems and situation and asking why these problems and situations exist in the first place and why we can't seem to be on the track to fixing them. Okay, so moving on to chapter three. Uh, at the outset of the chapter, Freire is talking about praxis. We're talking praxis, people. Praxis, like we've said before, is, uh, you know, political action. So it's uh, P-R-A-X-I-S. That's praxis. And think about it as uh, putting your activist role into a real action. And uh, Freire defines praxis as a combination of reflection and action. So that real action, that real praxis, is uh, action and reflection working together to produce words and ideas, which is transformed into work and movement, uh, which will bring about a true praxis. So if we are to rely only on our words, you know, sacrificing any real action, then our praxis will be reduced to just rhetoric or, or slogans or platitudes, uh, like we've been saying, uh, talking about identity politics or trying to, you know, present ideas to people. If it's just uh, getting reduced to slogans, that's all you're going to get. And I think in the era of, you know, the media campaigns and hashtags, we see a lot of this verbalism without action. And bringing attention to issues is important. And, you know, like we said, social media, powerful tool. But we can't trick ourselves into believing that this is real action if it doesn't actually materialize into real action. It's necessary to start the conversations, even more necessary to carry those conversations into real material action. And on the flip side of that, you know, if we are to only use action, sacrificing any, you know, reflection or critical thought, then our praxis will only be, uh, you know, superficial activism masquerading around as being revolutionary. Uh, so this is for the crowd who want to, you know, forego the difficult conversations, uh, the kind of reductionist crowd. Let's eschew this kind of uh, critical analysis because, you know, we got we to gotta do the real stuff uh, because this isn't going to accomplish anything. 
you know, true liberation begins with the true dialogue with one another, as Freire notes. So, you know, when somebody kind of decries uh, keyboard cowboys or social justice warriors and asks them, you know, oh, are, are you going to actually do anything about it? It's like, well, they kind of are doing something about it. Uh, and in effect, you know, they are they are starting a lot of these conversations. Like we talked about with identity politics, of course, there are overzealous individuals using these conversations uh, to put on a performance, bolster their own egos, get some internet clout. But the reality is a lot of these folks are just trying to engage in a true and meaningful dialogue. And that's that's the part of reflection, the reflection part of this praxis. So your action cannot be without a reflection. If we truly want to transform the world, we are going to have to engage in this type of reflection and dialogue. And uh, I, I, I would uh, agree with Freire that we should beware anybody who wants to uh, put an end to the conversation for the sake of expediency. Um, they present uh, merely the illusion of action, uh, and what they're really doing is just looking to impose their praxis or their freedom or their liberation unto others. And so chapter four is uh, is the last chapter in the book. Again, it's a quick read. It's a dense read, but it's a quick read. And chapter four is when Freire puts all the theories and the ideas together, exploring uh, what he calls dialogical and anti-dialogical methods used by uh, revolutionary, uh, revolutionary movements and, uh, and uh, revolutionary educators, but also oppressors and the uh, dominant elites, respectively. So the first uh, tactic uh, that our oppressors might use that Freire explore, uh, explores is uh, conquest, uh, and it's done through domination and mythicizing. So uh, Freire says the earlier dialogue uh, begins, the more truly revolutionary the movement will be. Um, and a dialogue with the people is radically necessary uh, for every uh, revolution to be authentic. Uh, and that's what distinguishes a revolution from a military coup. And a military coup is something that is done through domination. And once this domination is carried out uh, and, you know, a people are oppressed or subjugated, then a power structure must be maintained. And how do you do that? Well, you do that by mythicizing. So that's the myth of the charitable elites. Uh, you know, rebellion is a sin. The myth of private property. The myth of the uh, the lazy oppressed. The myth the 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 myth of the natural inferiority. Uh, the myth of human nature. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's uh, on the outset, it's domination and conquest. Uh, and then that is, again, just maintained by propaganda and ideology. And that's why they view everything as an act of conquest or domination. Uh, because, you know, they do not want to be or exist with others. They want to have or possess others. So the next tactic that Freire talks about is uh, divide and rule. So unity and organization are seen as dangerous things. They want to foster dissent amongst people. And uh, I think we see that a lot, uh, you know, with uh, the politics of us and them. Uh, so in the United States, you know, you see a lot of talk about the migrant crisis uh, and how they, they're going to take your jobs. They are going to, uh, you know, they're going to put you out of work and it pits, uh, you know, the American worker, you know, versus uh, the migrant worker. But really, the American worker and the migrant worker should be working in solidarity with one another to overcome the people who are stealing uh, their, their, uh, the, the surplus value provided by their labor. And for that, we need power. 
And there's only one way to get power. Organize. All the workers together. One big union. And the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war. Not a war in Europe. War against the capitalists. Freire, uh, interestingly, talks about how... Um, you know, the dominant elites, or uh, think of this as like your boss or something, uh, they will uh, single out and promote individuals under the guise of promoting the community. Uh, It's a very sophisticated way of keeping the community divided and subjugated. So, you know, we see that uh, in, uh, I guess, the, uh, the promotion into like a managerial class, uh, or, I mean, especially we see that in strike breaking. But we also see this in popular resistance movements. Uh, think of celebrity figures that came out of uh, Black Lives Matter or, you know, the climate justice movement right now, or, I mean, even the Democratic Socialists of America, they're having a moment. And uh, I think it's being recognized by the people who are in power, like, okay, well, we need to uh, we need to at least uh, make gestures or acknowledge that uh, they're having a moment. And uh, let's try to curb how much influence they have uh, over uh, the conversation. You know, at one point, uh, people within uh, the the more vocal members of, like, say, Black Lives Matter, climate justice, etc., you know, they they were revolutionary and dangerous with their activism, but now they are rendered more or less ineffective, uh, very by the book, uh, and totally subsumed within the establishment framework, thus continuing the manipulation of their own communities. Um, And this is how popular resistance is kept in check. And the next one discussed is uh, manipulation. Uh, And and this goes without saying. This is what we talk about with propaganda ideology. You know, dominant elites try to uh, conform the masses to their objectives. And they do so by, you know, pushing either or, you know, having to rely on like myths or mythicizing things or, uh, you know, outright just trying to uh, misinform and confuse people. And like we've been talking about, you know, a lot of these things, they seem common sense, like, oh, yeah, like, of course I knew that. But, uh, you know, reading it and having Freire kind of expound upon that really, uh, really helps to kind of illuminate how these things function within our society. And the last tactic that Freire talks about here is cultural invasion. Oppressors impose their own values and beliefs onto an oppressed culture. And this is in an effort to make oppressed people's perspective align with that of the oppressors. So this is really insidious shit here right now, because this is what manipulates the oppressed and pushes them to be more like their oppressor, kind of capitalizing on that duality that the oppressed already live with, you know, they uh, living with the uh, internalization of oppressors. Uh, and make it, it makes oppressors' culture seem uh, seem dominant. Uh, so cultural invasion is both a tool and a result of oppression. This is uh, this is again kind of like following up uh, in uh, in line with like this divide and rule kind of thing uh, where let's say a radical political movement or political party, uh, you know, proposes an idea like, uh, okay, Medicare for all is a perfect example for this. Uh, So you have uh, the conversation about Medicare for all in America and single payer healthcare. 
And uh, now uh, Pete Buttigieg is saying, well, Medicare for all who want it, or Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren have plans that are Medicare for all plans, but they aren't single payer plans. And so it's a way for them to co-opt and appropriate aspects of it to make it seem like it was their idea all along. It's this tool uh, to appropriate, uh, you know, popular culture or popular counterculture. And it it again just renders it ineffective or it realigns it with the ruling interests and structures. And in uh, switching to... uh, the tactics of uh, dialogical action. So this is these are the uh, the liberatory tactics. Uh, Ferrari talks about you know cooperation and organization, and this opens up the uh, the conversation to something really uh, really interesting. And it's a it's the conversation on freedom and authority. So Ferrari notes here that uh, there is no freedom without authority, but there is also no authority without freedom. All freedom contains the possibility that under special circumstances, it may become authority. Freedom and authority cannot be isolated, but must be considered in relationship to each other. And in talking about organizing or uh, cooperating, you know, uh, cooperation and organization of mass movements, Freire talks about how exercising authority is required of revolutionary movements. And this is important to emphasize uh, because exerting a political will (laughs) requires the use of authority. Your praxis is going to, uh, is, is only going to be effective through authority, whether that be, you know, uh, civil disobedience, uh, you know, or sort of like a hostile movement. These are all types of authority. And uh, in today's political climate, you know, authoritarian is kind of this loaded word that's used to stoke fear and conjure up, you know, these, uh, these images of totalitarian states of control. But that's a tool that's a propaganda tool by uh, the, the people in power to manipul- manipulate us into believing that our current political systems are just and anti-authoritarian, you know, exerting nor force or control over your lives. And all political structures are maintained through the use of authority. You know, even this, uh, this Western democracy that we live under, that's maintained under the use of authority by the state. Uh, you know that we live under, so uh, that 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 cannot be forgotten. And uh, I, I, when when people talk about you know authoritarian socialism, or you know, oh well, you know that's uh, that that that's an uh, authoritarian regime. Are they not looking at the current state of like a lot of Western democracies and like the surveillance state that we live under? I think we can easily see through the layers of propaganda and ideology on that. So Frederick Engels, uh, who is the uh, the co-author of the Communist Manifesto with our boy uh, Carl, uh, he wrote about authority, uh, and he has this uh, essay called On Authority, where he says, uh, the anti-authoritarians demand that the political state be abolished at one stroke, even before social conditions that gave birth to it have been destroyed. They demand that the first act of the social revolution shall be the abolition of authority. Have these gentlemen ever seen a revolution, though? A revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It's the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon the other. And once people have come to power through popular revolt, 
or popular resistance, they have an ethical duty to prevent any attempt to restore the old oppressive power. You know, it, it's like we talked about before, you know, they, they the oppressive power was already imposing, you know, a violence against people, whether that's, you know, physically or economically or culturally, etc. You know, Freria notes that this is not an abandonment of the revolutionary dialogue that we are engaging in. Uh, because dialogue between the former oppressors and the oppressed was already not possible before the revolution, so it will continue to be impossible afterward. You gotta remember here, there would be no oppressed had there been no prior situation of violence to establish their oppression. This is not a call for an unchecked absolute authority free from criticism, but rather it's a militant liberation movement focused on the transformation of society through the will of the people. You know, we have such a broken conception of how history and and, and political action has been achieved that, you know, we just look at our current situation and our current, uh, like, uh, electoral politics sort of paradigm and we say, well, that's how it's always been. So we just have to vote people into office. And uh, voting is a part of it. It's a part of the diversity of tactics, uh, you know, voting in elected officials, voting in on uh, certain uh, certain ballot measures or ballot initiatives, but again, it's got to be coupled with real political action, you know, whether that's like mass mobilizing, organizing, striking, forming unions, etc. All of these things are part of exhorting, exerting an authority, but it's an authority of the people, by the people, with the people. And that's really the uh, the crux of the whole book, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a true praxis, a true dialogue with one another. And uh, I just want to leave you folks uh, with uh, this bit talking about a revolution that is born out of a love, uh, and it's a love for humanity, and it's a love for working with one another. So Che Guevara once said, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. And a true transformation of the world, you know, this true revolution that we're talking about, it must be born out of a profound love of humanity. You know, we have to be engaged in an unshakable communion with humanity, an intense faith in humankind, you know, faith in, in the power of humans to be able to make and remake, create and recreate, you know, faith in, in people... Uh, people's ability to transform our world to where we can all become more fully human. And this cannot take place if we are uh, casting ourselves apart from one another or, you know, regarding uh, other people as, you know, uncivilized or, you know, unwashed. You know, we cannot engage in a real dialogue if we always project our own ignorance onto others without perceiving our own. If our revolution is not born out of this profound faith, um, it will not succeed in liberation. Uh, so I, I understand that a lot of people think they have all of the answers, but they can't even begin to approach those answers if they are not in communion with the people. Uh, Freire says that uh, love is an act of courage, not of fear. Love is a commitment to others. No matter where the oppressed are found, the act of love is committed to their cause, the cause of liberation. And this commitment, because it is loving, is dialogical. 
as an act of bravery, love cannot be sentimental. As an act of freedom, it must not serve as a pretext for manipulation. It must generate other acts of freedom. Otherwise, it is not love. If we want to see that true liberation, a true emancipation of people, we must understand that it will be through working together in solidarity with one another. It's not to say we won't be challenging each other's beliefs at times, even directing people towards new ideas. You know, we have to push one another. But we can never do this from a place of condescension. The dialogical man believes in others even before he meets them. And that wraps up Pedagogy the Oppressed. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys. Thanks so much for reading along. Uh, this is the most important book that I've ever read. Uh, and uh, I felt it was really important uh, at the outset of this book club uh, to put this one in there uh, to give people some uh, context as to uh, you know what we're trying to do when we talk about bringing about like a revolutionary education or a, a critical analysis of the world. Um, I'm not the authority. No, no one is the authority of the, uh, the gatekeeper of true liberatory education. You know, we're doing this uh, in dialogue with one another, and I think that's what's most important. Arise, ye workers from your slumbers. Arise, ye prisoners of want. For reason in the world now thunders, and at last ends the age you can't. Away with all your superstition, servile masses arise, arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition, we'll spawn the dust to win the prize. Also, comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race. Also, comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race. No more polluted by reaction. On tyrants only we'll make war The soldiers too will take strike action They'll break the ranks, they'll fight no more And if those cannibals keep trying To sacrifice us to their pride They soon shall hear the bullets flying We'll shoot the generals on our own side Also comrades, come rally And the last fight let us face the Internationale unites the human race. Also, comrades, come rally, and the last fight let us face. The Internationale unites the human race. No saviour from an high delivers. No faith have we in Prince of Peel Our own right hand the chains must shiver Chains of hatred, greed and fear Ere the thieves will out with their booty And give to all a happier lot Each at the forge must do their duty And will strike while the iron is hot Also comrades, come rally And the last fight
Internationally unites the human race. The 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 internationally unites the human race.